when you have something that everyone's doing and it's a good idea, people will do it too much. So maybe over the past 20 to 30 years, there has been a serious amount of lock-in into the sort of Linux stack that everything uses. And so at mm -hmm. some point, you do get the thing that innovates in multiple directions and breaks out and actually beats it. And then everyone's shocked. Welcome, everyone, to the latest episode of The Network Age. I'm Bitchel Ritson, and I'm here, as always, with my co-hosts, Timluk Miptev and Nilrun Mardux. But today, we are joined by an extra special guest, uh, Rocco of Basilisk fame, uh, Urbit ID, appropriately Baxel Lissel. So, uh, Rocco, thank you. Thank you for being with us. We're really glad to, to have you here. How are you doing today? It's a pleasure to be here. Is my audio okay? Uh, audio is. perfect. The pleasure is Great. ours. And obviously, this has been a, a super eventful few days in the in the crypto world. And we're definitely going to get into FTX and all that. Rocco, on our um, prep conversation, you mentioned to me that all of crypto was a scam. And I, I don't think that <laughs> has disproved you in the last few days. But before we get there, I was wondering if you could just tell us a little bit about how you got involved in this in this space and uh, sort of what your what your journey to the network age has been so far yeah thanks that's a good question um so i mean i guess i've approached uh a bit from several directions i got into crypto rather late unfortunately uh i say unfortunately unfortunately for my finances i basically <laughs> bought some crypto in 2020 um and sort of wrote it up and then sold um but I've been interested in in various things that are kind of adjacent to that for a very long time. Um, I invented the basilisk in you know the the late two thousands, um, and I was involved with the rationalist community that grew up around the less wrong website where I still post um, occasionally. Um, and uh, yeah, I've also um, sort of I'm also linked to Urbit by being a keen reader of. Uh, Mencius Moldbug, Moldbug, who I believe was one of the founders of Urbit a long, long, long time ago, um, although he's now left. Um, so I, I guess I've approached it from several directions. Um, I have kind of toyed around with the idea of, you know, decentralizing important institutions being sort of a, um, a key point of leverage for the future of humanity. Um, so the idea of taking things that are done um, using a pen and paper, using traditional institutions, people and buildings and parliaments and stuff like that, and, and basically turning them into smart contracts as being uh, sort of key and, and perhaps something that can fix a lot of our problems. And, you know, maybe that's the kind of thing that could have fixed our little um, incident we've uh, had with FTX recently. Yeah, a little, a little incident, just a little hiccup, a little blip in the road, you know, in the, in the grand... <laughs> scheme of history. But yeah, I, I alluded to this, that when we uh, first talked earlier this week, you um, were expressed some crypto skepticism based just on how easy it was, uh, it is to do scams. And you really, you really, really harped on like dog coins and things like that. But it seems like maybe yeah. in this instance, um, centralization was the, was the key player. I'm, I'm curious what you've made of um, FTX and Sam Bankman-Fried and, and how this fits into your larger understanding of crypto. Yeah, I mean, I guess the problem here is trust, right? So, you know, we, we, we're in a situation where um, 
there are certain things that you currently need centralization for. Because crypto hasn't, um, on the technical side, it hasn't managed to, you know, make those things work. One of those, now, you know, there has been some progress on this, but it's not, it hasn't gone all the way. So a lot of people still use centralized, trusted custodial exchanges to trade cryptocurrency, to store their value, you know, to custody their funds, whatever. Um, and that's a problem, right? I mean, it's, it's, it's not a new problem, you know? There have been multiple extremely significant exchange rugs or rug pulls in, in the history of crypto. I got my funds off FTX. I warned people on my personal Twitter and also have a colleague who has a crypto, you know, crypto dedicated account who sent out warnings on the third of November. Um, so yeah, I mean, it's it's a big issue. Let me get into that then, because you know, when I I'm the kind of person who I just feel terrified if my funds are on a centralized exchange for you know quite literally more than the time it takes to, you know, get them get them in and out if there's some necessary on off ramping to do, um, or if you know I have to send funds to someone who only wants to receive it on like you know. Tron USDT or something, but it sounds like in your case, you did have funds on FTX, even though, you know, you, you sort of understand the risks, like what's, what's sort of driving you there in that case? Like what's the specific use case that's having you keep that money on there up well, until, I mean, you know, getting the warning? Yeah. I mean, there are certain things you can do on a centralized exchange that you really can't do on chain. So for example, if you wanted to take a position that was short Solana long Tron, mm -hmm something like that with a cross-margined account yep. you know because you, you think tron is going to do better than solana you can't do that on chain there's it's almost you know it's almost impossible to do that in a fully trustless way it's not quite mm -hmm. impossible it'd be very difficult to organize there's, not, there's like also that. not much liquidity and stuff like that for the things that where it does work yeah, although that's also improving. So there are mm -hmm. certain things, certain types of trades that you just can't do. There are certain products like leverage tokens, for example, which you can make a lot of money off if you, you know, if you're in the right place. Um, but they don't really exist on chain as much. Um, and I think, like, yeah, I mean, there's 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 a whole bunch of things. Well, I'm I'm wondering. I think. You know, it's not hard for me to understand why people use a centralized exchange like FTX. And we can sort of dunk all we want, as a lot of crypto Twitter has been doing, and saying, why are these projects so dumb as to leave their their funds there, yada, yada, like good riddance. But I think it's, it's not hard to understand why your average person would want something that feels safe, even if it, it isn't. It's endorsed by the right people. It's easy to use. Um, which so many other um, things in crypto aren't. And I think people mistake something having a good UI for being trusted and, um, and secure. So I, anyway, that's all I'll say. I, don't, I totally understand why people have their funds there, but I think the bigger question is um, how do we ad address this going forward? What are the fallout, uh, the implications of this? And is it, only, is it as simple as just no centralized anything ever? And how do we get there? Yeah, I mean, there probably will be centralized stuff, you know, forever. Um, I don't think that's ever going to stop. But I mean, we do have, I mean, basically Ethereum is sort of leading the way in actually fixing this. 
in that you can do a lot of things on Ethereum L2s, right? Because Ethereum is sort of helping to fix the scaling problem. And because L2s can can be made trustless, you don't have a security problem, right? I mean, mm -hmm. obviously the, L the L2s that currently exist are actually effectively trusted. You have to trust the people who run them. They're all like multi-sigs. But, you know, eventually you can have things like Arbitrum and Optimism and Metis and all these things. And I guess maybe, well, Ukbar, I guess, um, can be trustless uh, layer twos where no, you can deposit ETH and uh, you can do stuff with it. And then even if the people who run Ukbar or who run Metis or who run Optimism, even if they're bad, you can, you have, you know, you have sort of sovereignty over your ETH, you can withdraw it. Yeah, I do like an observation and a question here, which I fully, it's an important point for our listeners that like, let's say Optimism, Arbitrum, and pretty much all uh, ETH L2s now are not trustless because, you know, they have like, you know, this operator fallback. I would note that one difference between them and a centralized exchange is that it would be very transparent if the operators started doing anything, which takes away some of the temptation. But it's like, look, I, I don't feel great about it either. But my question is more generally, since I think you have a pretty deep understanding of uh, the benefits of even like, you know, ETH L2s in terms of eliminating bridging, the long-term promise there, stuff like that. What are the fundamentals of crypto that are most attractive to you and the most interesting uh, beyond the broad term of decentralization before we get into, you know, what you see as the, as you know, the big problems? What's most attractive to you about it or interesting? Well, I mean, I, I guess the removing trust thing is um, is probably what attracts me because when when you look at what's happened to a lot of institutions that sort of we rely on, you can look at maybe FTX as one, but you could also look at Wikipedia, for example, or you could look at the scientific community. They've all been corrupted to some extent, right? the mm -hmm. the best The best way to be a predator in the modern world is to find some kind of institution that people place trust in and then corrupt it from the inside. And I think that's basically what Sam Bankman-Fried did with centralized exchanges. He, you know, he mm. went in front of Congress and told people how, how it was really, you know, how great his exchange was and how everything was safe and he was doing the right thing. And he's also, you know, an effective altruist and he donates to charity and he eats cucumbers and how could he possibly do anything bad? Well, <laughs> that's exactly the way, that is exactly the optimal way to be evil, right? You know, you 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 basically find the point of trust and you own it and you know then you exploit it and it's not just ftx wikipedia has fallen to the same thing with reliable sources and the reputable sources list and you know this is to some extent why elon has had to buy out twitter because they were doing the same thing with twitter they were like okay let's make this public square where we have free speech, except, you know, there are certain kinds of speech that are not really free, like, you know, if you say anything we disagree with. You, so you see how this works. You find, you find some trusted institution, you subvert it, you take it over, and then you have root access to everyone's minds, root access to everyone's wallets, and uh, that's, that's bad. Let me turn that into a further question then to explore that, because obviously, you know, when you say it's bad, it's that, you know, an individual actor or a certain like type of actor can then, you know, take this sort of powerful thing, this institution and start doing stuff with it. So you said earlier that you think decentralized, um, we can call them institutions or just sort of entities are important to the future of humanity. Uh, can you just specify when you talk about the future of humanity, sort of what's your desired outcome? What's your framework there? What are what are you going for positively? 
Um, what's my desired outcome? I mean, that's a tough one, right? Because the future of humanity is it's evolving. <laughs> it's kind of strokes. like a, yeah. It, it's kind of like a caterpillar turning into a butterfly. You know, you might not necessarily know exactly what the butterfly is going to look like, but there are certain things that most people agree are bad. Um, you know, it's probably bad, and and I think the thing that pushed Elon to basically buy Twitter was when you had a situation where there was a satire magazine that was trying to satirize trans transgenderism which was then being banned and the moderators are probably you know promoters of transgenderism right and they are basically you know they're like owning the public square right i mean this is this really is the place where everyone goes to speak free speech is an important institution it's not perfect it doesn't um, it doesn't solve everything, and, and in some cases, you generally do have to curtail speech. But to the extent that speech should be curtailed, you should know who's curtailing it and why. You should not have, you know, these invisible sort of shadowy people in the background who just sort of make these decisions, because of course that's going to be motivated. Um, so, I mean, one property of the future that I'd like to see would be that you know there is accountability that comes with power, right? If somebody has the power to cut off your speech you should know who they are and you should know why they did it or alternatively it sounds like you're you're also okay if it's a more like you know decentralized sort of organism to some degree where you think that some of the things like some of those values that you like like free speech would sort of be emergent properties is that an accurate way to say it because i think if, if you take something like well, we can talk about to what degree you think something like Ethereum's captured, but in the ideal versions of something like Ethereum, there is very much a sort of emergent quality or to the degree there's a social consensus, it's sort of very broad, hive mindish rather than, you know, directed. So is that your feeling that like the qualities you want would likely emerge from a lot of decentralized systems? Um, well, I mean, you, you might get some fairly nasty things emerging, actually. Um, it seems that basically what emerges from crypto is dog coins and <laughs> rebase Ponzi's and stuff like that. But mm -hmm. um, I okay. think there is a process where people will see that things are broken and they will build institutions to fix them. So, you know, Wikipedia is a pretty decent example of this. People saw that it was kind of broken to have knowledge you know kind of like paywalled behind encyclopedias um and they were like hey let's just make an encyclopedia that everyone can read and everyone can edit and that's actually a really good idea the problem is it got captured it got it got parasitized right a parasite came in and said oh look i can capture this thing and control it and therefore i can control what everyone thinks and i think that that last step where you know they somebody manages to, to control an institution without the users really consenting to it, that's mm. where organization comes in. Uh, that's great. And I'm, I'm curious if um, you feel like there are any um, developing technologies that offer a path toward this, this vision of, of greater transparency um, and where the people controlling information or the centers of information are less difficult to capture. I mean, I'm an urban person, so that is a place that immediately comes to mind, but it seems that urban, at least conceptually, if it's, you know, when it's fully realized and working, speaks to, to some of your concerns. Right, it does, yes. Um, I mean, you can, you can do anything on urban, right? I mean, 
I've I've been playing around with it for the past couple of days, and you know it's like a four chan equivalent on her, but you can just say what say whatever you want, right? Um, it re- it reminds me of the internet in the nineties. It's like wow, this is the internet, but it's not censored. Um, <laughs> it was a bit of nostalgia. How um, how can you just pause there for a bit? Because all we've talked about in your background is like briefly mentioning, you know, your brush with fame with you know Rocco's Basilisk, like um, you know the AI that will come back and torture you if you don't bring it into existence. But how long have you been on the internet? Like what era are we talking here? Because I think we're probably roughly the same age. So yeah, I'm well, I mean, I'm, I'm thirty eight. I'm okay, 38. There we go. I I got onto the internet in you know around sort of 96 something like that. So it was after the early days of the internet. It was after Eternal September, but um it was before like the corporate it was before the internet became really corporate, right? So, you know, you still had a lot of web pages that people built themselves at that mm-hmm. point, right? You still had yep. people actually just saying stuff on the internet. It, it rem, that's why it reminds me of Urbit because you know on Urbit you, you really can just like you know spawn up a group and say stuff. Whereas today you know you build a website, you say something they don't like, and it's like oh you know Wix has you you violated uh, Wix's terms of service, you violated mm-hmm. Cloudflare's terms of service. You're not allowed to say this. So I mean it is profoundly different today, really, and it's really crept up on us. The feeling of ownership is like, I do remember that from when I was first on Urban in like a lot, like in mid 2020 and this bizarre feeling of like, like, oh, I own this thing. Like literally I have this group, regardless of even whether I can say anything, like I own it. It's my thing. And I've actually moved on to other parts of Urban and other narratives since then. But it is funny to the degree, the degree to which we have this kind of, you know, uh, Eagle sort of, you know, super ego, like watching us uh, that we're that we've all fully internalized uh, for when we're like, you know, typing things on the internet now. So, yeah, I can, yeah. I can see it. it's, it's interesting to see Urbit through fresh eyes again because I've, you know, been on it and just moved much more to the technical product side through time. But it's interesting to see that again. I'll be more n- nostalgic about the uh, early days of the internet for me if if more Urbit people um, started asking me ASL in chats. You know, I think. That would bring it ah, back. Ah, there we go. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Those <laughs> that really, that really takes it back. But we know, we know the answer is like twenty-five-year-old Zoomer male. So we're, yeah, we're fine. Yeah, exactly. We don't have to. We don't have to ask. <laughs> but but the the funny thing is, just when I was when I was sort of browsing around Urban a couple of days ago, was the degree to which it took me by surprise. The degree to which I was shocked. I was like, wow, you really can just say anything here, and it's like, and I remember when the, the actual internet was like that, and it's just like bang, you know. Um, I'm kind of curious. I want to follow up on what that means when you say, like, you can say anything here and, like, what type of speech is being prohibited. Because I think some people, when they are upset about free speech, what that means is, like, hey, can nobody take a joke anymore? Um, Versus, like, which doesn't matter to me personally as much as sort of, like, you know, censoring discussion and exchange of ideas. So it's, like, I don't know. I feel like when some people say, hey, you can say anything you want anymore, is it like, is, is Urbit just people shouting the N-word and everyone going, haha, we can say that? Or is there like, do you feel like there's really an exchange of ideas that feels like it's reaching towards a greater truth or understanding or is rigorous in some way? I think it's a bit of both. I think it'll generally be, um, you'll get a lot of the, of the former, just people, you know, putting out... Um, you know, forbidden speech that it's that is forbidden for uh, political correctness reasons, um, 
and that that comes out you know if you go to the 4chan equivalent on urbit i'm sure you can find plenty of that but let me give you an example i was on twitter and i i made a joke um something like wow that trade went so badly that i want to murder an economist right because there had been some economic report that was negative and <laughs> right, took short right. position, and then actually it went up and I got liquidated. Um, and I was like, I just want to murder an economist now, you know, ha-ha. And then my Twitter account was permanently banned. I mean, yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's... Instantly, because they have an AI, they have an AI now that looks for instances of somebody um, advocating violence, and it had caught that, and it had automatically banned me permanently with no you know they'd said there's no you can't appeal this you're banned and that was like a like a fourteen thousand follower account just deleted it's pretty interesting to think of how we we sort of have to now internalize that there's ai watching us for what's you know about as tame a joke as you can possibly make by basically anybody's standard um and i guess i'm i I mean, should we seg this into ai a little where i think you've spent more time and just see how you've sort of like you know, felt its impacts or how, like what you've done, like what you've done in the field or how you see that affecting things currently? Yeah, well, there's two questions there. One is what I've done, which is, mm -hmm. you know, I've done sort of uh, big picture research into AI safety a long time ago. And sort of more recently, I've done more practical stuff in terms of data science and machine learning for various applications. Uh, most recently, I worked on language models. Um, but you know, not not the kind that uh, people think of becoming sentient, but kind of, you know, smaller, less sophisticated ones. Um, but, um, you know, I mean, I, th I think the relevant point with AI is that it, it is a technology that will empower the people at the center, you know, far, far more. Because now you can tell an AI to pick out all instances of a certain type of thought and delete them. Well, not a certain type of thought, but as you know, anyone who expresses a certain type of thought, right? And in this case, it was like the AI has been told, look for sentences where somebody advocates violence and ban that person's Twitter account if they do it, right? But you can imagine how in the not-too-distant future, that could be something like, look for instances of people who say that FTX might not be solvent and ban their Twitter account. Mm -hmm. Do you think the AI has kind of reached that point where it will be sophisticated enough, or is it going to keep capturing, like, jokes inside of... Like, can the AI get humor, I guess? What's your view well, on that? I mean, it, it'll, it'll improve incrementally, right? Um, it'll just mm. be a little bit better every year. So if we go back to Urbit then, um, how do you see that, it, like, let's say it is successful to some, to some degree in terms of enabling an operating system with arbitrary apps, like, on top of that? How would you see that interacting with increasing AI power, which seems like pretty much a given at this point, regardless of, you know, general AI, but just, you know, AI generally, you know, getting better? How do you think that would interact with a world where Urbit has, let's say, more adoption, like, you know, 10 million users of pretty high value or something? Yeah, I mean, I think ideally the way Urbit should go is is people should have their own personal AI. And I think that's that's an idea that mm. I've had. I think mm. it's also an idea that Steve Armahandro has had, but there are a lot of decisions that people have to make. You know, should I watch this content? Um, you know, what should I do with my time? 
Should I, how should I manage my finances? Blah, 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 mm. blah. And it would be good for people to have a personal AI that's basically protecting their own utility function. So, you know, it's protecting their time, it's protecting their attention, it's protecting their money uh, in order to compete with the, you know, the big AIs that the platforms have that are trying to steal your money, steal your attention, etc. Um, so I think that might be a nice killer application for Urbit. Um, if you can have your Urbit run um, a personal sort of guardian angel AI, um, now that that might have some hardware implications that are um, a little bit difficult right now. Um, but you know, it's it's plausible that people, if if you could really get value out of something like that, it's plausible that people would host the hardware, or maybe you know, they would have the hardware themselves, or maybe they would have it hosted somewhere. But I, I think it's moving. Like I think it kind of has to move in that that direction in the end. The question mm-hmm. is how long it'll. Yeah, that's fascinating. I've never heard the idea of personal AI expressed that way. It, it sounds like something I've maybe seen in, you know, sci-fi uh, shows or, or short stories or something. But I, I think the idea of having something that is, perf- is you know, trained to your interests and needs is I don't know, exactly. a really positive, optimistic angle for something, a, a place that I often feel a little pessimistic or scared. Um, so I'm just curious about... W- how you think a personal AI would work, um, how you train it. I know you talked a little bit about there being a techno, um, a technological barrier, but yeah, could you, could you explain your vision for something like this? Well, I mean, there are already sort of primitive versions of this, right, in terms of you can have uh, controls on your phone that will limit the amount of time you spend on a website, uh, like kind of attention controls like that. Um, I already use a launcher on my phone, which um, basically decreases the um, attractiveness, shall we say, of the of the phone. So you have plain icons instead of colored icons. Mm-hmm. Um, mm, yeah, I'm doing that too. Kind of like it's a huge turn off, huge change. Yeah. yeah. Turn yeah. off, turn off notifications, you know. Um, so we're already doing this in a sort of ad hoc way. But I think in the long term, people are just going to realize that when you connect everyone together, and this is something that cryptocurrency has done for finances, when you connect everything together, when you, you, you sort of like make everything more dense, and that makes parasites, pathogens much more virulent, right? Because you know, if if you're a scammer in the year 1940, you know you have to like go to people's doors to scam them. But if you're a scammer in the year 2022, you know you can launch like a fraudulent crypto Ponzi, and you can you know use social media to recruit people into it. So it basically helps the aggressor a lot, right? So making people more connected sort of generically helps the bad guys. And I think having ways to sort of defend against this. Um, is is going to be kind of a big deal. Yeah, hopefully. I remember I, I saw you jump into the Ukbar chats and you were noting kind of the tension in your mind between, um, you know, Urbit being your own thing and decentralized versus the fact that you signed up to it for a hosting service. And this this whole yeah. topic is why I'm actually fairly bullish on, let's say, hosted Urbit because you're able to kind of solve the problem of giving you a personal locus of a thing that runs programs for you. And you could even imagine small networks of people who you know, who you maybe sent you your okay sending your data to and paying. And there's a few of them and they, you know, maybe run it on their hardware and send back to you or how you want, but you still keep like, you know, the keys to it. You have commoditization options and it feels like 
you know, I don't like to let the perfect be the enemy of the good. And it seems like what we're talking about here is so potentially powerful that if, if you can get most of the benefits with only, you know, the small cost of a, a occasional, you know, maybe disruption or having to run backups of some kind, um, it seems like very worth it. But, you know, that, I, I wonder if I should make that into a question of when you look at Urbit and things that are flaws, just to go into that, um, before we even get into stuff like, you know, the programming, like programming language or things like that, how do you feel about the fact that like, it seems like realistically it's for most people, it's going to need to be hosted to be like, you know, viable at scale. But I mean, is that really true? I mean, I reckon mm -hmm. people would pay for a device that was basically like a modem that just went next to your modem. I think mm. people would pay. Um, if it was what like $30. Think, yeah. What do you think if like, let's say, 20 or 30% of people are willing to do that. And then there's 70% who want to just, you know, do a sort of SaaS type thing where they enter some buttons and it's running for them somewhere, but they know that they still control the keys to the ID. How would you yeah. feel about that world? I mean, I, I think we're kind of already running this experiment in the crypto space because I have in front of me a very nice uh, Trezor, which is mm -hmm. my hardware wallet. And, you know, my crypto is safe on there. That's part of my, well, it's not an AI, but you could think of it as, as part of my yeah. you know, personal, personal digital um, sort of bodyguard. In some sense, it's guarding my finances, right? And it's worth it for me to pay, you know, several hundred dollars to have a device that guards my finances, right? And it's and more mm -hmm. and more people, as crypto becomes more popular, assuming that Sam hasn't killed it, more and more people will pay <laughs> for these hardware wallets, right? Because it's worth it, right? You know, if you, people are getting rugged on exchanges for eight figures, it's worth paying a couple hundred dollars for, you know, a Trezor, right? And the user interface is getting nicer, it's getting smaller, more convenient, easier to use, etc. So, um, yeah, I'm, I'm bullish on, uh, you know, on actually physically owning it. Yeah, that's really <clears throat> interesting to me. I I think I wonder if there's a difference though between the crypto experience and the um sort of what you call like a, a personal AI software web experience management because when when we spoke the other day <clears throat> and I asked what would need to change in crypto, you you said something about we need pain, right? Um and then uh, we got you know, it. Uh, yeah, exactly. And then, <laughs> yeah. and then it delivered you. You basilisk it into existence uh, <laughs> or something. And but that that's it makes sense that the to a major event like that, people's response might be like, "Fuck, I need to get a treasure wallet. I need to get a ledger. I need to keep everything in cold storage and really um, take control of it this way." But is is our experience of the internet and these these social things? more of a frog in the pot situation where our freedoms and our privacy are being taken from us so slowly and incrementally that there won't be that pain moment where all of a sudden everyone is willing to shell out $300 for uh, a personal server for their orbit. Um, maybe, but I mean, I think, you know, with the Elon Twitter acquisition, um, that's, you know, there's a lot of people who are sudden, a lot of people on the political left who are suddenly discovering Mastodon, right? Uh, because they're worried that Elon's going to do something evil. He's not, but you know, they're, they're suddenly interested in it. So, yeah, I think there will be some of these pain moments. Um, you know, having a fourteen thousand follower Twitter account deleted because you made a joke that the AI didn't understand. I mean, that's um, that's hell, right? I mean, that's a huge loss. 
Um, I think we have to like get across to our listeners who have, you know, for those who haven't had a 14,000 follower Twitter account, and I've done the work top this summer, of the world. You know, even it's the highest well, high you can ever not, feel. <laughs> I mean, well, I think a, a few things that maybe just to put it in context for them, uh, A, it's, it's a fair amount of work. Um, it doesn't just happen by being there unless you were there in the very early days of Twitter and it could happen. And B, I've heard a lot of people uh, in those lofty heights say that, like, you know, the experience of Twitter is qualitatively different once you're passed around, you know, the 10,000 follower mark in terms of what it can do for you for networking, how seriously exactly. people take it, things like things like that. If I had yeah, my 440 exactly. follower account deleted, I would kill myself live on air on this on this that's show. a joke I, you I cannot make we do not take those no <laughs> killing Twitter, no though. killing yeah Riverside. Uh, don't, don't, don't cancel me yeah <laughs> AI. sorry i'd love life life is incredible but can now. you contextualize that a little bit rocco in terms of how losing the fourteen thousand person account felt it was it was pretty it was kind of like wow it's like it's not like they killed you but it's like you know, it's sort of on that, it's on that scale in the sense that I put a lot of work into this. I had a lot of, I had a lot of friends on this account. I had a lot of contacts. Um, this was a source of income for me. This was a source of contact, a, a source of sort of, um, you know, being able to get jobs, being able to, to, to do stuff. All of that mm -hmm. was just deleted by an AI, mm. just by a program, basically, right? Some computer program just decided to terminate you. Um, and Is there no I don't appeals think, process? Well, actually, I got lucky. So, so they said there's no appeal, but I kind of emailed them back and I said, "Look, it's a joke. It's out of context." And somebody actually managed to read it and, and reinstate it. But at the time when it happened, I thought that was it. Um, it's, and the, it's pretty the rare thing, for for appeals yeah. to work on these on these. It's sites. pretty rare, but it was a very clear case of a joke, and they probably didn't want. Yeah, they probably didn't want the publicity. And what's funny is that I actually got my main account, Rocco.eth, banned at roughly the same time um, for saying something about transgender people. I can't remember what it was. It was some. It was something that I didn't expect to be banned for. It was something like, oh, well, obviously uh, trans women are actually men or something like that, and they just banned my account. So I, at one point I got both of my Twitter accounts banned by AI, it was, these were not completely simultaneous, but they overlapped a bit. Both of my accounts are banned by AI, and I actually managed to get them both reinstated. The, the Rocco.eth was, was not a permanent ban, it was a temporary ban, uh, and, and eventually, I, I think I just deleted the tweet and I got it back eventually. But um, yeah, I mean, it's, it's kind of a big deal, right? Imagine having both of your Twitters deleted, you know. Yeah, and I've heard, you know, a number of people who have had, you know, many... Twitter accounts in a row deleted, it seems to like more or less just affect the amount of energy that's going into Twitter as well. Like people kind of like start withdrawing from it. Um, has that kind of, has that risk of being banned like affected how you spend your time online or are you kind of left with Twitter because that's sort of the only available option? Well, it, it didn't last for very long for me, right? It was the whole thing, you know, both of these were over within, uh, you know, a couple of weeks. So, um, thank, you know, thankfully. Yeah, but but the point is, if 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 I hadn't gotten lucky there, right, that would have been a really serious hit. I would have paid you know a thousand dollars to undo that. Maybe maybe five thousand. This is more of an observation than a question. But we talked in one of our recent podcasts about 
the hope of there being these kind of emergent capital content code organisms or like, you know, things where people can invest time and money in improving the code they use, let's say in an urban context, or like, you know, invest in content creators who then serve as marketers for interesting pieces of code, things like that. And what I'm hearing as we talk about, you know, something like Twitter, uh, leaving aside the technical difficulties it has and the limitations of the platform, is that it's kind of fundamentally even missing this feedback loop where people can get really interested in putting time or money into doing it because there's, you know, that potential for it to be to be cut off. And it makes me just as amusing wonder how much kind of virtual economic activity we're missing uh, by having these sort of platforms that are, you know, both unpredictable and also kind of, you know, not improvable. So that's my short pitch for what gets me interested about Urbit these days. But it's interesting to, you know, put that in, in, in the context of how you felt about that uh, and the sort of you know, wasted energy uh, potential yeah. uh, had you not been right. reinstated? I mean, people, I think people will pay a lot for a social media account that you can't be basically assassinated on, right? Um, maybe that's a kind of niche thing. Um, maybe, you know, there's only a relatively... But then again, you have things like Parler, you have Donald Trump. You, you know, there's probably quite a lot of people who would pay money for a social media system that they couldn't just be basically bullied on and sort of virtually assassinated. I mean, isn't like, Parler like famously a huge failure though? Like, <laughs> I feel like all it does is get made made fun of. Right. I'm not exactly sure what happened to Parler. Um, I think there was some kind of like event, some kind of you know, in somebody inside it was was against them and sabotaged it or something. I don't know exactly what happened, but the the fact that these things exist is sort of informative. Yeah, I guess the thing that <clears throat> I find interesting in this, it's frankly hard for me personally to care a ton about what is happening to someone's social media account. I get that it's like, you know, it's business and it takes work and time, but fundamentally I just, I don't care. It's social media. But I think what the... Um, the stuff that I think is more interesting is about like the way that this type of moderation seeps into uh, life in general and the way that, I don't know, this centralizing forces relate to something like FTX or, um, you know, Sam Bakeman, and how we're letting <clears throat> a smaller number of people control uh what we what we have and and how we're moving. So I think that you know how the thing I want to get to is how do we start creating greater decentralization in crypto in urban or online adjacent spaces and what perhaps is left that has value today like what are the places we can build on. Um well, a lot of these things require, you know, a lot of these centralized things provide uh, benefits to billions or hundreds of millions of people, but the thing itself is actually very difficult to build. Like, you need thousands of engineers to, you know, really build it properly. Um, or maybe not thousands, but you certainly need hundreds of engineers to make any of these things really work. So, um, I, th I think one issue is there are a lot of cool things that could exist, but that don't, because it's kind of hard to get them started. Maybe Urbit can kind of help with that a little bit, but even Urbit itself, like, you know, the difficulty right now of just 
look, if I could pay $100, even 200 for an Urbit of my own, right, like a physical one, I would just, like, do it immediately. But that mm-hmm. isn't working. Um, and the reason it isn't working, I presume, is because, you know, there's, like, a person who was doing it, but he's not doing it anymore. And, like, there's a lot of, like, the value of getting that thing working is huge, but it requires a lot of people to coordinate, right? You need coordination mm-hmm. to make it work. Yeah, yeah, well, what's your sense given, you know, ETH has now more or less, like, uh, massively improved scalability? Like, are, are you optimistic that that will get done, that that coordination will happen? And kind of over what, if yes, kind of over what time frame do you see that happening? Um, yeah, I mean, Ethereum has done really well. Um, you know, they've built a lot of software that's that's really useful in terms of, you know, scaling this stuff. Um, so I'm not sure, actually. Um, I mean, I'm kind of optimistic. There's a lot of things that I think are pretty cool. Uh, I mentioned to you guys earlier the WorldCoin idea, which is basically the, the thing where they scan your eye and give you um, a sort of proof of humanity, effectively, mm-hmm. a, a, bio, you know, um, uh, a biological proof of humanity that, that, mm. that nonetheless is still anonymous. Um so there's that, there's the Ethereum L2s, there's, you know, Ukbar is an Urbit L2, there's like a bunch of people who are trying to do this. Um, so presumably there will be some cool things that will get built. Um, so I'm pretty, I'm excited about that, certainly. Um, whether it's really going to live up to our expectations is another matter, though. You've given me another line of, again, sort of observation question when you, when you talked about the difficulties of coordination, like there's a thing you want, you would pay money for it. And it sounds like there's a few different pieces that have to come together for that, for those coordination problems to not just be solved, but to be solved consistently and then compound. Yeah. And so the first one is, uh, you know, you have to be able to get your message out there. So either, you know, someone has to find you saying that on Twitter and for it to be discoverable, or there has to be an equivalent thing in something like Urbit where, you know, that discovery of what you're saying can happen. And then you need to have a mechanism for, you know, collecting other people and both, you know, maybe textually, but also like financially being able to easily signal support yeah. for it and start doing, you know, I, I think that we, we underestimate the power of this kind of low scale capital formation and the, the, the enthusiasm yeah. for things like crowdfunding shows that it's there, but our platforms don't enable it very well or very often yeah, do have censorship. Absolutely. Uh, crypto crowdfunding is very interesting. Uh, dominant assurance contracts are very interesting where, mm-hmm. you know, have a sort of a smart contract where um, you say, well, I really want this thing to be built, but it's only going to be worth it if a million other people also do so. Um, mm-hmm. You can build a smart contract that says, okay, you know, if you if you put money into this, you'll be charged for it, but only if only if enough other people do, otherwise you get a refund. And you can even make it dominant by saying, look, if you put money into this and it doesn't work, we will not only give you your money back, we'll also give you a small bonus, right? So then sort of contributing it becomes the sort of game mm-hmm. theoretical mm-hmm. uh, outcome. So if you yeah, want to get of- something done, yeah, go ahead. It makes me think of what Justin Murphy did with the page app where he basically, you know, tweeted out, like, I want someone to build an app that can expose this web page. And then, like, someone just, like, came back and built it. But you could also just crowdfund that. We could start um, giving a direction where it's like, okay, we all want this app. Or this is an app that we probably want. Let's crowdfund it. be quite interesting. Yeah, I mean, dominant assurance contracts are very powerful because, you know, 
you can you can make it dominant in the sense that if I really want this thing, right, you know, I would might worry that not, not enough other people are really going to contribute to it. But if you say, look, if you put your $10 in and it doesn't work, we're not just going to give you your $10 back, we're going to give you 11 back, right? Then that makes the probability of it succeeding much, much, much higher. Um, because people are going to be like, you know, some people might think, look, this probably really isn't going to work, but hey, I can put $10 into this uh, and get 11 back. I'll just, I'll just do it for that, right? Uh, and then if it does succeed, um, you know, a, a larger fraction, maybe $2 out of your 10 goes to pay uh, an investor who, who took on the risk of it failing. So mm. if it failed, they would have had to foot the bill for everybody's $1, right? So, yeah. so that's a very powerful mechanism. The problem is, if it's a complicated thing that you're trying to build, it might not be clear whether the mm -hmm. thing succeeded or failed because it was not possible or whether people slacked off. And this is, this is kind of whether they sort of like, you know, didn't do a good job. And this is actually what's difficult because you have a sort of, um, you have a principal agent problem, right? You know, if you're, if it's something simple, like build a website for me, then like, okay, you know, it's pretty clear whether the person actually put in effort. But if it's something more complicated, like let's say cure aging, because everyone in the world would contribute to a dominant assurance contract for curing aging. People would contribute uh, as much as they could, right? It would be great. But there are, there are, you know, it's difficult to adjudicate whether the money would actually be spent properly. You have a principal agent problem there that's kind of hard to solve at the moment. Yeah, there's also two things that jump out, which is like one was just like if you did this kind of crowdfunding in the past, it would just get captured, right? So you could crowdfund, but then it's just going into another centralized company who may or may not, you know, abuse your trust as the people who crowdfunded it. So that's something where like I see a big difference on Urbit. And then the second difference I see is just like, you know, it's it's just a lot easier to build and deploy an app on Urbit a lot faster. So it seems like the range of sort of things you could crowdfund is a lot larger that now than it was in the past. Um, but yeah, to the third point, the principal agent problem, has that been solved at all? Is that just still like an open problem with this funding model? Well, so there are, so, you know, Sam Bankman fried rugging everybody on FTX is a principal agent problem, right? Because you had this agent SBF and then you had a bunch of principals, all of the people who put money on his exchange. And the deal was, oh, if you put money on the exchange, the agent will behave himself properly. He won't rug pull you. He'll, you know, he won't use client funds for his uh, gambling side, side business. But he actually did. So, you know, that kind of principal agent problem where it's a fairly simple problem, right? It's fairly easy to check whether it was done correctly. Crypto can actually solve that, right? So, you know, in the future, um, we will be able to replace custodial exchanges with smart contracts, right? That's going to be done. Yeah, no, for sure. So I think we've been talking here implicitly about the need for better primitives in order to like, you know, enable better things to be built such that there's less uncertainty as to whether they can, plus the ability to, you know, deploy those types of contracts um, as needed. But I want to ask about another thing since we've, you know, touched on your experience as a content creator uh, but going forward in this world where let's, you know, let's say some of the primitives that we all want to happen do happen. It becomes easier to program things to like coordinate over, you know, certain things getting produced. What do you think is going to be the role of 
this very almost specific either type of person or this type of role someone can take on of like a content creator, someone who's good at getting people to read what they say, get interested in things, and given a good enough platform can get, you know, these five, 10, 50,000 person audiences. What do you think their role is going to be in a world where it's, you know, maybe capitals is a little bit more uh, fluid and small in, you know, in these small things or like, you know, programmable systems are more there? Yeah, I'm not really sure about that. I mean, I think perhaps in a, you know, as the world becomes more connected, um, you're going to have, it's going to be more useful to be a content creator than to be, say, a bricklayer because content creation scales, but bricklaying doesn't. Um, so it's sort of like as the population gets larger, as the population gets more connected because more people are on the internet, anything that's scalable is going to be better. Um, maybe making capital a bit easier to access is going to feed into that as well. I'm not 100% sure, though. Where do you see yourself in that world? Like, because you've, you've obviously been on sort of different edges of both programming, um, you know, different aspects of tech in terms of AI, crypto, and also you've done pretty significant, you know, content creation and audience creation. What, which of those like activities appeals to you personally the most? Just a sort of a case study. Yeah, I'm not sure really. Um, a bit of everything. Uh, jack of all trades, perhaps. Um, but mm-hmm. um, I think if you're going to create content sort of necessary to well it's to create good content it's it's necessary to have actually done some of this stuff um because otherwise you you can end up just talking about something without really understanding it and and i I see a lot of that sort of thing actually um you know talking heads (laughs) who actually are talking about let me use that as a seg then into one almost unrelated topic because I remember it from early in the in the Ukraine war when you made your bet with Samo Berja as to um, you know where the extent of where Russia's advance would go. I think he was betting that they would control seventy percent of the country by April fifteenth or something that looks pretty bad in hindsight. Um, and obviously, I, I pay attention to these things pretty closely because I was living in Kiev on two twenty four um, and I'm pretty invested in the whole, in the whole thing. Um, so I'm curious. Uh, leaving aside sort of tech in that, where do you see kind of geopolitics at, biggest risks there, things that are most interesting to you, um, like currently? You mean for the world as a whole, or do you just mean for Russia and Ukraine? Let's say for the world as a whole. Yeah, I mean, the world as a whole, I'm not sure, because the big uncertainty right now is China. Um, Everyone in the West is, like, there are two camps in the West, they're both a bit schizophrenic. One camp seems to think that China is going to take over the world and it's the rising empire and America is the falling empire. And then there's another camp who think China is like about to collapse and it's uh, a kleptocracy and it's a disaster. And you know what? I'm not really sure. I suspect the truth is somewhere in the middle. I'm not a geopolitics expert. I mean, I'm a sort of amateur, right? I managed to make mm-hmm. a successful bet on that uh, but I think that was a fairly special case um, where you could just look at what was happening and look at the rates of change and say there's no way that this is going to go through, um, you know, without some kind of divine intervention miracle, which didn't happen. Um, but I think China is probably the big one. I think America is going to continue to be quite successful and influential. Um, and I think probably the people who are probably the camp that says America is actually going to continue to be a global hegemon are the ones who are more correct. But 
there probably will be some, you know, deviation from that. Plus, there's also the issue that demographics is becoming more and more important and Europe is becoming too old. Not enough Europeans are having children and this is this is going to have a big effect. Yeah, the ages were quite striking. I was looking at that just like yesterday and the median age in Portugal and across most of Europe is 46 versus like Latin America's high 20s. Even Argentina is like 30 median age. So yeah, it was it was pretty striking just to think. I kind of ignored that demographic impact. Um, I, I kind of just thought it was a little bit overblown perhaps. But yeah, the, the populations are quite old and sort of, you know, interesting question if Europe can kind of come through this energy crisis and kind of rebuild and kind of keep its industry together during what'll be a yeah, really challenging winter. Well, yeah. I mean, this is another this is another perfect example of the parasitization thing where you know, Europe post-World War II was basically positioned to be the strong, you know, at least the second strongest continent in the world. And then mm -hmm. basically the cultural zeitgeist was taken over by hippies and they all told us that, you know, in the 70s they were telling us that we were going to have overpopulation. And then they started talking about climate change and how, you know, we need to become ascetics and we need to stop consuming and we need to reduce the population and all become hippies. And, and the thing is, like, th these are actually really bad ideas, but they're very virulent ideas. They're very good at capturing people's minds. And it's been very hard for people to really combat them. Um, and we're now dealing with the consequences of that, where sort of embarrassingly, Europe doesn't have enough energy, even though we, we could easily build enough, for example, nuclear power plants um, to, to, you know, be, be a have a massive glut of energy and in fact there's a mm. there's a sort of exponential increase i can't remember what it's called but there's a there's a graph there's a chart of, of an exponential increase in humanity's rate of energy consumption which sort of leveled off at some point in the 70s and i think that's basically evidence of humanity as a whole being parasitized by these sort of elites who poison civilization and use that to sort of hold up their own personal reputations than their own personal well-being at the expense of the whole and you know that's really coming home to roost now it's interesting that we've had a network age episode that hasn't talked about kind of until the very end about physical you know or political uh you know on the ground things because usually we hit that much earlier and it's actually kind of nice that we stayed fully virtual for a while but given that um for you for you personally when you assess like this whole you know, this whole landscape, uh, where are you kind of placing your personal bets in terms of, you know, maybe where you expect to live or where you think the people you'll be working with or interacting with will be like likely to be in the future? Honestly, I'm not sure right now. Um, hmm. I guess that's more a thing about me personally than, than anything profound though. I mean, I, I guess if you <laughs> wanted to depersonalize it a bit and just say, where should uh, some kind mm -hmm. of generic person want to make, place their bets. You know, the U.S. probably seems like a better bet than Europe uh, right mm -hmm. now. Yeah, interesting, interesting. Um, all right, Mitchell, let me like throw it over, throw it over to you because I think we're ready to wrap up here. In that case, all right. Well, Rocco, thank you for being here for chatting with us. This was some. Really interesting conversation. It was great to, to get your perspective on everything that's going on. And I'm really happy to uh, hear that you have been announced as the new CEO of FTX. So congratulations. <laughs> um, I'll see you in the Bahamas. Uh, and uh, we'll see if we can get this whole thing sorted out. So uh, thank you uh, to everyone for listening. And we'll catch you next week 
on the Network Age. Hey, everyone. Thanks for listening to The Network Age. It'll really help us to keep getting our ideas out there, getting you know great guests, and giving you what you want if you can just help us with a few things. Uh, subscribe to us on your podcast platform of choice. Uh, give us a good rating if you liked it. You know, Hit that five stars. And our Twitters are in the show notes for me, Bitchell, and Nilrun. So follow us, retweet, promote the show. And we will keep giving you that amazing network age content that you love.